Ben, we're here. We're finally yes. doing this. We are, we are. It is episode one of the Oh My God cast. An ECW retrospective. I have been looking forward to this since we first came up with this idea. Yeah, so am I. It, we had we uh, we both attended the G one in uh, in Dallas back in July, and we uh, met up to do a podcast about that, and we enjoyed that so much that we did a another podcast over on on my podcast, the Outlaw History Podcast, kind of wrapping up the G one, and we were it's I I think. It's the new we should start a band. We should start a podcast. <laughs> it's definitely the new we should start a band. So, but it's so much easier to do because you it's easier to have a good podcast than it is to have a good band. Trust me, it's a guy who was in some crappy bands back in the day. Yeah, I I never learned to play music, so I never experienced that. But I know the, you know, it, 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 anybody can start a podcast. So. <laughs> and that was that was kind of where we were were stuck because there are. A million, bajillion, trillion wrestling podcasts out there. How many do you subscribe to? Do you like? Oh my goodness, it varies because sometimes I get mad at them and unsubscribe for a little while. Yeah, <laughs> but some of the ones that I listen to, I listen to um, Wrestling Observer Radio, Brian and Vinny, um, Mike Simpervi, Mike Simpervi, and the other guy who's Adam um, Big the, Audio. Big audio uh, yeah. Um, Figure Four Daily. So the, the, a lot of those, and I listen to Jim Cornette, both of his podcasts. I listen to the Studcast, um, Six Hundred Five, and other than that, uh, well, and I I also listen to the Mid South podcast on the uh, Arcadian Vanguard Network, and I'm giving all kinds of shout outs, um, which is not exactly what you asked, but I'm just trying to tabulate in my head. And then also, I generally listen to Mike Mills and the um, Booking the Territory guys. We have a very similar podcast diet, which doesn't surprise me. I doubt it surprises you either. No. Um, I'm, uh, you know, Wrestling Observer Radio is a mainstay. Brian and Vinny's a mainstay. Yes. Uh, in fact, I was talking to my wife earlier, and she told me about there's a website that you go to. And you copy and paste some of your writing, and it'll tell you like what famous author you write like. Oh wow, that's cool! I have to and try so, that. And you can just—I think you can just Google "I write like" and it'll take okay. you to it. And I got uh, Arthur Clark, who I'm not really familiar with, but uh, my Science wife's boss guy. said, "Yeah, my wife's boss said he was one of her favorites." But yeah. and I told my wife, you know, really and truly who my casual writing style is most like, and you're gonna know it when you listen to the podcast is Vinny. Like, <laughs> much like, much like uh, my second favorite wrestler of all time, Mick Foley, was a second-rate knockoff of my favorite wrestler of all time, Terry Funk. Uh, I am a redneck Vincent Verheide knockoff. <laughs> there are much worse things to be. And uh, the other one, uh, the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast with uh, Jim Valley and Fumi Saito. I love because Fumi is he's the Japanese Dave Meltzer. Definitely he's, is. He's fascinating. He's a historian, an author, uh, and I've I've followed Meltzer for years, and I followed Japanese wrestling for so many years as an American fan that I love to get Fumi's perspectives on 
pro wrestling as you know being someone who's lived in Japan for most of his life, but also has experience living in the United States and can explain Japanese wrestling as a Japanese person, but he knows how to relay the information to Americans. Fumi is incredibly good. I don't always listen to that one just because uh, there's not enough hours in the day for me to do everything that I have to do and listen to all the podcasts that I want to. But I do enjoy that one on occasion. I usually listen to it when they're talking about topics that I I really care about. And uh, I'm I'm a big Cornette guy as well. I love his podcast. It's like it's listening to Jim Cornette twice a week. It's a free Ph.D. in wrestling. Why would I not? Why would I not want to take advantage of that? And uh, I have just gotten into uh, Ron Fuller's Studcast because mm-hmm. I have. We talked about this right before we started recording that there's about half of a generation gap between you and I. Uh, I was born in 1987. Oh wow! So a, a 11 year difference because I was born yeah. in 76. Right. Yeah. So you grew up watching the latter days of territory wrestling. Mm -hmm. I did. I cut my teeth on Memphis because I was born in western Kentucky in a little town called Marion, which is probably about 400 miles or so from Memphis. So that was like the territory that came in uh, radio waves. As a matter of fact, I was on the um, running counter to Memphis, the Poffos ran in Paducah, so I got to see... Yeah, ICW, yeah. So Randy and Lanny, back in the day, in the early 80s. So, um, that was what I cut my teeth on, was that Memphis style. Yeah, and so you started watching wrestling very early in life. I did, and actually, I think the first wrestling that I saw, at least um, televised wrestling, because I don't remember the first live show I saw, which is weird, um, I had a great aunt and uncle and they had the, the the cable packages and stuff, and I believe they got AWA because oh, wow, yeah. Um, so because we would get stuff out of Indiana some too. Um, well, that have been I, on ESPN though. It was before it was on ESPN to my memory, so I'm not sure what it was coming out of. They might have just been getting, you know, and maybe it wasn't AWA. Maybe it was the Crushers out of. Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah, the Crusher did run, did run out of Indianapolis. But it was it was AWA guys. I remember it was guys that I associate with the AWA that I saw on that. Yep. And I didn't discover wrestling until I was about twelve years old. I didn't. Nobody in my immediate family was into wrestling. Nobody like. None of my friends really were in it, and to any degree that talked about it until the late nineties. Uh, the big boom period when I would have been in, in junior high going into high school. That was when I discovered it. So the first wrestling that I ever saw was the WWF in late 1999. And then so people people started to see that I was into wrestling. So like I remember my sister told me, well, there's, there's this other wrestling on uh, TBS. So that was how I found WCW, which was the worst time to have possibly discovered WCW <laughs> Was the time that I discovered WCW. Yeah, and probably then, so. And then the next wrestling that I discovered is the subject of uh, of this podcast, ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling. I found uh, 
this would have been in late 1999. I had just discovered wrestling. And of course, I have always had a little bit of an addictive personality. When I find something new that I like, I go all in on it. I get so into it. So I've been watching wrestling for a couple of months and I've obsessed with it. And at the time, I didn't have internet at the time. Uh, I don't think that I had discovered the VHS tapes yet, or I was right around that time, but I would, it was just looking for wrestling on TV and you would watch whatever you got. And so one Friday night I discovered on the Nashville network of all channels, uh, this gritty outlaw looking wrestling show called ECW. (laughs) It was so outlaw. So I guess I should tell how I discovered ECW. Yes. Um, as we stated, I discovered wrestling at a younger age than you, and but my evolution is somewhat similar. Um, so I got to see the dying days of the territories. I had a uncle who used to to tease me. Once again, I said I cut my teeth on Memphis. He used to te- tell me that he taught Tojo Yamamoto, <laughs> <laughs> and he was younger than Tojo. But I was like, you know eight nine so i was like whatever i was like really you know and bought that shit hook line and sinker um but i discovered crockett and so nwa became my jam i mean i was just just it was the way it was presented so you as both of us are fans of Cornette, just serious there was some goofy stuff in it but you know it was treated like a sport it was treated like it was real everything well not everything because as it got closer to the uh, Turner buyout, things did get a little squarely. But as a, a kid, everything made sense. So then I discovered the WWF, and I was like, you know, Hulk Hogan, because he was everywhere, you couldn't escape him. And I, it just didn't really vibe with me because it was a slightly more cartoony. Well, wrestling is very cyclical. And in the early 90s, after Turner bought out Crockett Promotions, you know, for a couple of years there, it wasn't very good. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like the death of WCW bad, but it wasn't the, very the good. Jim Hurd years, the, yeah. the first death of WCW. It's kind of like exactly. that. And we, we had the first and second red scare that <laughs> a lot of people don't think about that first one, but the, yeah. the, the Jim Hurd, <laughs> the Jim Hurd era of WCW was the, the first potential death of WCW. There was. And I do think that in the 92 and 93, it got better, but that's beside the point. Um, and yeah, Bill Watts was booking. Right. And, you know, uh, WWF was never really my thing. So I kind of fell out of watching wrestling. You know, yeah. I became a, a another podcast that I listened to on occasion. I became a lapsed fan. Um, and then, you know, uh, some friends of mine came over and they're like, we saw we got a satellite and we saw the stuff out of the northeast where these guys are doing the craziest stuff. Oh. There's this dude named Sabu who does all these insane leaps and dives and they use barbed wire and everything. And the the only barbed wire I had seen is like, you know, I'd seen clips of some Abdullah and Brody matches and stuff like that. So I was like, what? And this was like 95 and I was just blown away. Yeah. And ECW is just, it's like I said, it's gritty. It's authentic. It's dangerous. And it's, it's more akin to the Southern wrestling that you grew up on. And 
that I, in retrospect, you know, I'm just discovering that stuff now. I'm just going back and I've started watching, you know, Memphis on YouTube and I've gotten into, I've gotten into the stud cast and it's like, like, man, like it makes me wish that, you know, I could have grown up in, you know, one of those territories where he was a big yeah. star. I'm like, God, I, I would have been, I would have been so into this guy going after Harley race or Terry Funk for the world championship. I never got to experience that kind of local regional wrestling firsthand. And it's just something that you and I both are, I guess uh, if, if I can be self-indulgent a little bit, Southern intellectuals. Sure. And I agree we, with that. We are people who we take great pride in our Southern heritage, but we do that uh, without trying to deny accountability for, for the sins of the past. And people are talking about Southern food or Southern music or Southern football. What about Southern wrestling, man? Southern wrestling is the greatest form of wrestling that has ever existed because uh-huh. it felt... It was authentic. It was everybody knows. Everybody knows what wrestling is. But people who appreciate wrestling know what I mean when I say it was real. Yes. It it wasn't real, but it was real. And wrestling fans understand what that means. And you get so many people. I've I've just run into people in my daily life who, you know, I bring up wrestling. They're like, yeah, you know, older people. In Dallas, like, yeah, I used to watch the Von Erichs or, yep. you know, back home where I grew up in Arkansas, it was, you know, Junkyard Dog. It was Mid-South Territory. Or uh, I had friends from, you know, my best friend growing up, his mom was from West Memphis. So she grew up watching Jerry Lawler oh, yeah. and Bill Dundee. Yeah. Yes, sir. And I think that's so fascinating the way that, you know, people grew up watching different wrestling according to the area that they grew up in. And that was the reality until... Until my generation grew up, yeah, we, we were the first ones to not have that. So I never wrestling wasn't that hot when I was growing up because Mid South was dead. Yeah, and and it's a shame too because you know, and this is something that Cornette touches on all the time because people had a place to go. You could kick around, and if you didn't like it in a place, you could move off to some other place, and you learned to work the different styles because different areas work different styles. Memphis was more of a a brawling area, you know, with very elaborate storytelling. Mid-South was, you know, had a slightly different style than that, even though I consider it kind of a brawling style, too. Then you had areas that were more technical. So you had to learn to get over with different crowds and you could work on your character. And, you know, once instead of having to worry about you know, getting stale, you could go someplace else where you weren't overexposed and just keep, you know, your character fresh and keep learning and keep growing as a performer. Earlier today, I was watching an episode of Memphis TV from, I think, June 1979. And, you know, they would show matches from the arena. So they showed a match from Jackson, Tennessee, and it was Bill Dundee against Tony Charles. And I was watching, and they were selling it. Lance Russell was selling it as this is a great wrestling contest. And but you could tell that he he was putting it over, but he was also burying it. <laughs> but like, if you watch it, like I like it because I like that kind of wrestling. Yeah. But like, it's just kind of funny that that's not Tennessee wrestling. Right. <laughs> Tennessee wrestling was 
brawling crazy insanity and we we've talked about this just amongst ourselves and we wanted to make a point to bring it up on the podcast that there would not have been an ecw if there had not been memphis wrestling no not at all i'm trying to look up i should have prepared for this i didn't i i have notes and this wasn't on the notes so i'm just improvising now but the famous tupelo concession stand brawl below concession stand there were a couple of them i think the original one was in 1979 and it was uh wayne ferris and larry latham and i don't remember who they get involved with in the original oh it was uh it was uh it was built on the and jerry lawler of course i found it and yeah. uh <laughs> wayne ferris of course would later go on to be the honky talk man and i gotta tell you i've been watching this memphis tv and i am weirdly fascinated by larry latham <laughs> I, I don't know why it just he's he's a big raw bone southern some bitch and he's just he didn't even have a hometown he's just from Louisiana yeah from Louisiana he's, he's just bleach blind and it uh, so I'm I'm hoping that uh like I said I've started watching the Memphis TV episodes that are available on YouTube so I'm hoping that this is coming up soon and I get to see it it's just so fun to see that stuff unfold as it originally did. But anyway, the famous Tupelo concession stand brawl, uh, of course, it worked. And anything that works once in wrestling, they're going to try again. Something that no doesn't doubt. work, some people are going to keep trying it over and over again. So it was in about 1981 that there was another Tupelo concession stand brawl. And two of the people were they're a Japanese tag team. And one, I think, was uh, was Mr. Fuji. It, may, it it was one it was one of the Japanese wrestlers that worked American territories. It was it was either Mr. Fuji or Professor Toru Tanaka or Masao Ito, one of those guys. I think it was Mr. Fuji. His partner was a young uh, junior heavyweight from Giant Baba's All Japan promotion by the name of Atsushi Onita. Mm-hmm. So Atsushi Onita got involved in this second Tupelo concession stand brawl. He ends up going back to Japan and blowing out his knee and retiring. But then he didn't stay retired. He, of course, became anybody that knows the name, but Susio Onita knows he was the deathmatch guy. He started a promotion called FMW in the late 80s that survived into the late 90s, and it was the... They really popularized what we come to know as deathmatch wrestling. Yes. And, of course... Getting back to to my original point, FMW was where guys like uh, Sabu and Mike Awesome, the Gladiator, and uh, guys like that sort of cut their teeth in uh, in Japan, and then they brought back that, for lack of a better term, wrestling ideology back to the United States that it had a profound influence on ECW. So that concludes my historical argument of uh, why there would have been no ECW without Memphis. Uh, yes, definitely so. Um, Memphis, and not for nothing, one of the bookers of it, before ECW really became ECW was Eddie Gilbert. So that's another right. Memphis connection. And, you know, him and Paul Heyman were very close at one time. So, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said there. Just to clear up one thing, I, I looked it up and... Um, Onita's tag team partner was Masafuchi. 
Oh, which, how, how did I blow that? I love Masafuji. Yeah, I just I, I screwed up uh, Mr. Fuji and and Masafuji. Easy yeah, to do. Uh, I mean, you know. Masafuji, I, I don't know how much classic all Japan you watch, Ben. Masafuji is... By the time I saw him, you know, in the late 90s, he was an old junior heavyweight, and he's just... He's just a surly old son of a bitch, which is honestly my favorite type of wrestler. So. I, I've... Yeah, me too. Uh, I've seen a lot of the classic AGPW, but I... It's been spotty. Um, I wasn't really big into the tape trading community, so I didn't get any of it um, at the time. But I, I seek it out because that's some of the best wrestling ever. There's uh, people upload the stuff to YouTube. And there's a guy that's uh, uploading all the All Japan Weekly TV from 1985. So I've been kind of watching it, and I saw uh, Masanobu Fuchi and the Second Tiger Mask, Mitsuharu Masawa. Against the team of the Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith. Oh man, <laughs> it was exactly as, as fantastic as it sounds. Yeah, yeah, there's no way it couldn't be. But we're we're gonna start even further back in time than the uh, the time period in ECW where you discovered it, and the time period where it started to have that hardcore influence. We're even going back in time further than official WWE canon recognizes ECW is starting. Did you? Yes. I, I didn't realize. I kind of did, but I never really thought about it. But now that I've been looking at this stuff, I'm like, yeah, they're. Uh, everything about ECW always goes back to 93. Mm-hmm. And the promotion that would become extreme championship wrestling started running cards in uh, February of 1992. So there's a whole year of ECW history. That's it's, it's like, it's not it's acknowledged. Lost. It's not acknowledged in the official WWE histories, but yet they're putting stuff on it from the network. So that's, it's interesting. It, it is. And I was somewhat aware of it as a reader of the after mags. They would have like the little section and either the wrestler or pro wrestling illustrated. I don't remember which one they would have like indie results. And so I remember seeing the name Eastern Championship Wrestling and recognizing some of the names of the guys who had been in the WWF, um, you know, in those results. I had no idea that it was going to become what it became, obviously. But I do remember like seeing, oh, Jimmy Snuka won the ECW title, and I was like, okay, whatever that is. <laughs> We're going to talk about that today. Yes. We will. So you and I are both uh, both Southern boys, although you live in uh, you live in Milwaukee now, right? I do. Yep, I'm up here in the uh, Canada South, as I like to call it. <laughs> So, so you're a little bit more well acquainted with northern cities than I am. I, uh, you ever been to Philadelphia? I have. Um, actually, I was there not that long ago because the flight I was on got redirected. So I spent a little time in Philadelphia. You know, I've been there once, and it was uh, we were flying to uh, to England, and we had a we had like a six hour layover in Philadelphia. So we left and went to one of the famous sandwich shops. It was the only time I've ever been to Philadelphia. I've only been a couple of times, and unfortunately, I didn't get to do anything too cool. Like, I didn't get to go see, like, the Rocky statue or, you know, any of that yeah, stuff. I, 
I'd love to go see the the historical stuff there. Yeah. It and did have we mentioned that we're we're both uh, how how we met? We should probably explain to people who we are and how we met before we get too far into it. <laughs> probably so. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we are neither of us are in the wrestling business or have ever been in the wrestling business. I was uh, close once, and I'll tell that story. But. Oh, awesome! Well, I've I've never really. Um, I, I got high with a former WWE United States champion one time. That's the closest. That's the closest that I've ever been. That counts. That totally counts. <laughs> totally counts. Anyway, I forgot where I was going. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. How we is... met. How we met. Oh yeah, we we did not meet in Philadelphia. We met in Little Rock. Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, it was uh, it was the Southern History, the Southern Historical Association. In uh, November 2015, we were both on panels promoted by the Phi Alpha Theta Honor Society. We were on separate panels, but uh, Ben was on panel with uh, my friend Dan Deggs. So we ended up meeting and bonding, and we're, we're both we're both pursuing advanced degrees in history, and then we're we're both kind of big uh, loquacious guys with southern accents and then we find out that we have this shared love of pro wrestling so we we, we just hit it off immediately yes we did yeah. so my uh, wrestling story my greatest wish as a child was to become a pro wrestler whenever anybody would ask me <laughs> what I was going to be right? uh, I said I was going to become a pro wrestler and I had an opportunity to that I was not able to, to uh, take part in. So there was Tony Falk, who if you're, you, you run across the name as you get further into Memphis. He was running a little promotion. I don't even remember what the promotion was locally, but they were doing like the Armory and uh, Paducah, which is the largest city in the western part of Kentucky. Um, and me and my group of friends would go. And we rooted for the bad guys, the Falk World Order. <laughs> when, when, when was it? Oh, it, it was God. It had to be like 97, 98, somewhere there, maybe 99. I, I don't think we can dignify this with the term independent. The, the, these guys are outlaw. <laughs> no, that, totally, totally. Uh, though they had some pretty decent guys working there. But anyway, what they would do is every show they would have a raffle. And I never bought a ticket for this raffle because, you know, I, I, I was poor. Yeah. <laughs> and what you got if you won the raffle is you got to be one of the fan lumberjacks. Uh, they would have a lumberjack strap match. And so they would have three legit winners, and I was the kayfabe winner. They <laughs> came over to me one day, and it's like, hey, you root for the bad guys. Will you be the lumberjack? And I was like, I'll totally be the lumberjack. <laughs> So I would walk around outside the ring in the corner by the the bad guys, the the female evil manager and the, the the guy who had just recently turned heel. And when the faces would get tossed out of the ring, I would beat the shit out of them with that belt. <laughs> and when the the heels came out, I would just turn around and walk away. <laughs> and it was so oh. fun. And we would do that. We did that like two or three weeks. And they eventually asked me if I wanted to get trained. But my mom had just broken her back and so i wasn't able oh. to do it 
but man, that was the closest I came to fulfilling that dream, and it would have been awesome. Well, it might have been, man. You could have yeah. been the hottest. You could have been the hottest outlaw wrestler in Kentucky. I could have been the king of the mud shows. Oh, Jim Cornette could be cutting promos on you every week. <laughs> he so probably would have been because I mean, at the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to think that I have more integrity than Ian Rotten, so that I wouldn't have gone down that dark path. Yeah, yeah. But still, you would have done you would have done some dumb mud show shit. It was, it was the nineties. Yeah, I that was talk about that. The yeah. nineties. It ECW could have only existed in the nineties. I I don't even know how to explain that. It's do you know how to explain that for maybe some of the younger listeners who weren't there and don't understand what I mean when I say that ECW could have only happened in the nineties. I can try. I don't know that I can really put it into words. Um, so the 90s were a time of great optimism, but also a cynicism. And, you know, with the downturn in WCW, NWA, and WWE being like super duper cartoony in the early 90s, there was just nothing for fans of what we have called southern wrestling or real wrestling out there awa was gone had been gone for years the territory system was collapsing there were independents but most of them weren't very good and then something came out that was different that was in your face and brash and it used a lot of the video techniques that you would see in music videos because this was when mtv was still playing music and it just tapped into that zeitgeist and really set it up as not only something you know, the, the famous, um, well, Johnny Valentine quote, I can't make you believe in wrestling, but I can make you believe in me. And this was just so different than everything else that this felt like, quote unquote, real wrestling, not that cartoon bullshit that wrestling had become. The Johnny Valentine, Terry Funk, Gene LaBelle, every tough guy quote. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, attributed to a million guys. But yeah. So Philadelphia, Philadelphia sports fans by the '90s had a reputation for bloodlust. These were they were people who, uh, sometime in the '70s, I think they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. Uh, They cheered when members of opposing sports teams suffered career-ending injuries. Philadelphia in their stadium. Philadelphia was historically a WWF city going back to the old Philadelphia arena back before the Spectrum even existed. Uh, That's where Pedro Morales lost the WWWF championship to Stan Stasiak in 1973. That's where Pedro was so over that they wouldn't even announce to the people that he had lost the title (laughs) for fears that that they would riot. Then by the late 80s, uh, Jim Crocker Promotion started to expand to counteract McMahon's national expansion. They got into Philadelphia. They ran the Civic Center. And sometimes, you know, they would run the same night. Uh, Crockett at the Civic Center, WWF at the Spectrum. At, but Crockett, what we talked about earlier, Southern Wrestling, it was... The WWF was taking over the world. It was becoming cartoony and cookie-cutter. But the NWA was gritty and violent and bloody and hardcore and, yeah. People I mean, in Philadelphia just like that better. 
Well, yeah, the, exactly. I mean, we can say that this would not have existed at any time, but if you look back at Starcade 86, where every match on the card gets color, it's not like blood and violence were unknown to wrestling fans. Right. I just, uh, as kind of prep research for this, I watched uh, the Rise and Fall of ECW, the WWE documentary. Pretty which, good documentary. Oh my God, I can't believe the thing is 15 years old. It yeah. seems like... It seems like it was a long time after ECW, but it was three years. Yeah. And it's been 15 years now. That's insane. Well, I think that speaks to the power because it has been so long, but you still hear ECW chants break out. As we were trying to come up with an idea of what kind of wrestling podcast we wanted to do, I had the idea for doing an ECW podcast. And I looked to see if anybody was doing it, and all I found were that a couple of people had started and maybe made a few. I was just amazed that nobody was doing this. Because people people still, they remember it so fondly, and they want to talk about it. Especially, you know, people of, you know, the people of the generation kind of between you and me yeah. that, that grew up on that stuff, they still want to talk about it. We still... Because the world is such a nightmare now, people of our generation want to talk about things that we used to enjoy back before the world was such a nightmare. Well, I mean, and if I see a wrestling fan of my age group are just a little bit older and they're wearing a wrestling T-shirt, there are only three T-shirts that they'd be wearing. Austin 316, NWO, or ECW. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, that that speaks volumes to with and, and it should be noted that's without the major TV deals or the exposure on pay-per-view. Because, you know, initially ECW got very, very popular on mm-hmm. late night cable, you know, or satellite. And they had to fight like hell to even get on pay-per-view. So they never yes. had the the mass exposure to an audience that WWF and W and WCW did. And Ben, you know what we're going to do for the people? We are going to chronicle that entire history. Exactly. That entire history of this promotion. But it's going to be it's going to be years before we're talking about pay-per-views. We're going back. Oh yeah. To the very beginning. We're going back to the early '90s and. By the early 90s, the wrestling business in North America had declined a lot from, you know, its heyday in the mid to late 80s. WWF had been going hot and heavy since 1984. They were starting to experience a lot of diminishing returns. Uh, Crockett became WCW. It was on its ass. Uh, Wrestling fans in Philadelphia weren't getting what they wanted. Then in 1990, Joel Goodhart started up his independent promotion, uh, the TWA, the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, and this would be uh, a precursor to ECW. Yes. They were... The... Go ahead. I was going to say, a lot, initially, a lot of the same talent running a lot of the same venues. Yeah, but the TWA was... It's kind of more like the PWG of its day. It was uh, It was not a regular territory. It was... It, they were quarterly indie super shows. Right. Well, I mean, there was only really two territories running at that time. You know, there was Smoky Mountain and Memphis. Uh, Memphis was, or uh, Smoky Mountain wasn't even a thing yet. Well, I I meant in that time frame in the 90s, not necessarily right then. 
Yeah, and it's really funny in that you hear that early on in ECW's run that they refer to it as being a territory. That was the way that they were looking at it at the time. And, of course, it being the 90s, you couldn't afford to be territorial anymore. You had to be national, and that was... That was ultimately a big cause in the the collapse of ECW was that they, like it said in the documentary, they got too small to be big and too big to be small. Yeah. And I had a point that I was getting to in there. I'm really bad about, I have a really good idea that I think I'm getting toward and I go in a different direction that's also good, but, you know, I'm still, I, I missed something in there. There was a point in there I wanted to make that I lost. Hoping I get better than that as we do more podcasts. I'm sure you will. Uh, and it probably didn't help that I interrupted you. Um, but uh, you were making a point about TWA. Yeah. And, and they they used uh, they were using the best independent talent available in the United States at the time, which in 1990 meant, you know, the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher and Terry Funk. And uh, Joel spent too much money on talent. And apparently he was... Uh, he wasn't a wrestling guy. He was kind of uh, seemed good natured and gullible at the beginning. A lot of people, unethical people, they would they would raise their asking prices just for him because he was gullible and would pay it. And then Joel started to advertise guys that he knew were going to be there. Yeah, and the gate started dropping, and he started hot shotting and burned out the whole territory. And then in January 1992, the TWA. Ceased operations. I'm trying to remember because I, another element of this, and it probably was TWA, but there were a bunch of, and he would be what people in the industry, and I don't feel really qualified to say this, but it's a term that they would use, money mark. Right. Uh, um, but I remember it had to have been him because it was in Philly, they would run these supercars. They had like an autumn Armageddon card. I remember hearing about um, around that time that had a best three, best two out of three falls um, match between Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher. That was just insane, you know. So stuff like that, just bringing these what we now term indie dream matches, you know. Bam Bam Bigelow versus Terry Bam Bam Gordy, that kind of thing. Cactus uh, Jack and Eddie Gilbert had their famous feud there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Funk and Eddie Gilbert. It's really, you know, great talent for the time. Yeah. And it le- it left a void in the Philadelphia wrestling scene. And the guy who stepped up to fill it was, uh, he was Joe Goodhart's ring announcer and, I'm not exactly sure about this, but I I think that uh, he was also an investor in the TWA. Todd Gordon become uh, essentially he he's the guy who started Eastern Championship Wrestling in February of 1992. Yeah, I'm unsure how financially he was tied to TWA, but definitely the the man we can thank for providing the bankroll for early ECW and getting it to, to where it could launch. Yeah. My source for a lot of this information was the, I think it's a Scott Williams book, hardcore history and uh, the, the totally unauthorized history of ECW. And they just said, 
Th- that book just said that uh, Gordon was a ring announcer. But I was looking through the Wrestling Observer for, you know, about this time, and it mentioned Gordon being a being an investor in Goodhart's promotion. But you know, I didn't I didn't go on to read if maybe he had been corrected that or not. So I don't. It, if you're going to cite this podcast as evidence that Todd Gordon was an investor in the TWA, don't. Right. <laughs> I'm not that confident in the information. He, may, he might have been. That's my professional opinion as a historian, maybe. Well, I mean, seeing the way that a lot of these independent promotions and even ECW went, there was a certain amount of financial buy-in from people who were involved so it would not surprise me, but again, I, I agree that we we don't honestly know for sure. It's just an educated guess. Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't matter that much. No. What matters is ECW, and we're in ECW yes. now. We are at the first ECW card. It was held on February 25th, 1992 at Mike Smith's Sport Bar in Philadelphia. The card, you want to hear this card, Ben? I do. Tell me. Yep. The opening match, Jimmy Janetti went to a 20-minute draw with Stevie Richards. All right. That could have been very Jimmy good. Gennetti, I don't know who Jimmy Janetti is. Do you? I, I, the name does not ring a bell. Not Marty Janetti. Not uh, not Jimmy Backlund, I don't think. Just a, a, some guy. Uh, yeah. The second match, at least as one guy I've heard of, Glenn Osborne defeated... Crybaby Waldo. <laughs> uh, that is a great wrestling name, Crybaby Waldo. <laughs> uh, absolutely. The next match, Super Destroyer number one defeated Michael Bruno when Super Destroyer number two got the pin after they switched places. And for any really old school, like guys older than me, this is not the Super Destroyers that were Bill and Scott Irwin in Georgia Championship Wrestling in 84. No. No, these Super Destroyers were guys named Doug Stahl and A.J. Fritzoid, and apparently after the end of this run, uh, they both left the business never to be seen again. I mean, sometimes that happens like that. The next match on the first ECW card, Tony Stetson defeated Ivan Koloff. <laughs> former WWF world champion, the man who beat Bruno San Martino in Madison Square Garden to end the eight-year championship reign, losing to Tony Stetson at a sports bar in Philadelphia. Well, it was like 25 years later or something. Sure, but he had just he had just had the big run in Crockett. He was still relevant. He was. He was still probably one of the better workers on that card. <laughs> Next match, uh, Jeff Royal defeated Max Thrasher. I'm willing to bet that Ivan Koloff was better than Jeff Royal or Max Thrasher. Having seen Max Thrasher, yes. <laughs> and then in the main event, Johnny Hotbody and Larry Winters went to a double disqualification with DC Drake and JT Smith. You know, all four of those guys are decent. I don't know that uh, Hotbody might be the best one of them. Yeah, Larry Winters was a Philadelphia guy, and he was actually Gordon's first booker in yeah. uh, in ECW. So I looked up uh, on pro wrestling fandom Jimmy Janetti, and unremarkable looking guy, but he apparently did train Stevie Richards. So oh. good job well, that, out of that's, that. That's probably the most important thing he ever did in the wrestling business, without a doubt. We're big fans of Stevie Richards here on the Oh My God cast. <laughs> It's hard not to be. 
The second show was on March 24th, 1992, back at the sports bar. It was pretty similar. A lot of the same guys. Uh, the main event was Ivan Koloff beating Tony Stetson in a Russian chain match. Okay. Uncle Ivan, Uncle Ivan got his revenge. The third show was April 25th, 1992, at the Tabber Youth Association in Philadelphia. And this is the show where we had the crowning of the first ECW heavyweight champion, who was Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Superfly. Uh, he'd, just, he'd been one of the top stars in the WWF in their hottest period in the 80s. He had fallen on some harder times and was wrestling in sports bars. Uh, so they had two battle royals. Uh, Jimmy Snuka won one, and Wild Man Salvador Velamo. Velomo. Oh, my God. That guy. Wild Man, Wild Man Salvador Velomo won the other battle royal. Then they had a singles match, and Jimmy Snuka won and became the first ECW heavyweight champion. Wasn't Salvador Belomo like a former WWF job guy? Yeah, his claim to fame is him and Roddy Piper interacted backstage, and Roddy Piper asked him, what are you doing here? I didn't order a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Roddy Piper is... Yeah. Oh, Roddy Piper. I... I have a little bit of a stick that I've been trying to cultivate to sort of d- develop a following and audience for these podcast projects. And I got to tell you, I steal a lot of shit from Roddy Piper. <laughs> that dude was magic on the mic and pretty damn good in the ring, but magic on the mic. If, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. And Roddy well, Piper is the best. I mean, you know, Dr. Tom Pritchard stole this entire thing from Roddy Piper. Yeah. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, because I no, mean, no, Flair, it, Buddy Rogers, but I encourage everybody to steal from Roddy Piper. It'll make you a better performer. And I also want to say, Jimmy Snuka was 50 in '93, turned 50 that year, and was still in better shape than just about anybody on these cards. And I, and we have to acknowledge, and I, uh. We have to acknowledge it just so we can do the rest of this podcast without having to ever mention again. Yes, Jimmy Snuka probably killed a woman in the 80s and got away with it. Yeah. The, he won't be a focus of our podcast for a long time. Uh, we're going to get into more uncomfortable situations later mm-hmm. on when guys like Chris Benoit start showing up. Yeah. And it's just... It is what it is, and we're Ben and I are historians. We are not going to let knowledge of the future prejudice our blue, our view, blue view, red view, orange view, yellow view, our view of the past. We're not going to look through the past with rose-colored glasses, and we're not going to look at it with whatever would make us. Uh, Past judgments on historical actors that over evidence that wasn't a factor at the time. So, well, especially this, when we're just talking about their performance as a professional right. wrestler, not how terrible they are as human beings. Because even a lot of the wrestlers who didn't commit murder or potentially got away with murder, like Snuka, um, were terrible human beings, quite frankly. So, yes, uh, rest in peace, Nancy Argentina, the woman that Jimmy Snuka probably got away with killing. And uh, we're never going to speak of that topic on the podcast again. Okay. Uh, Also on that show 
We got a, the debut of an ECW icon, Mr. Sandman. <laughs> not, not, not yet the Sandman. Sandman, Mr. Sandman. That was the, when he was in his surfer gimmick. The, yes, the surfer version that wore like a wetsuit that wasn't wet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, guy, we also, go ahead. Oh, oh, it's a guy from Phoenix, Arizona being a surfer. <laughs> or somewhere in Arizona, I think it's Phoenix. I, I thought he was just a Philadelphia guy. I didn't know that he was... Uh, is he from Arizona? I believe so. I, I, I just always thought he was a Philadelphia guy, but you know, I could be wrong. Uh, we also had the debut of a team called the Pitbulls. They were listed in the results as uh, Pitbull Rex and Pitbull Spike, so I don't know if that was uh, Gary Wolf and Anthony Durante, the famous ECW Pitbulls, but there was a team called the Pitbulls on the show. The next day... Uh, this would be April 26, 1992, back at the sports bar. Uh, we had our first title change. The first ECW championship reign lasted one day. This is the next day, uh, Jimmy Snuka lost the championship to Johnny Hotbody. Johnny Hotbody. So I just looked it up because we have the internet, and we were both wrong. Sandman is from Sandy, Utah, although Bill from Philadelphia. Yeah. Oh. Are we sure that that's not that Sandy, Utah isn't a kayfabe? I don't know. No, that's, that's where he was born. Now, whether that's where he grew up or not, I can't say. Oh. And weird. it is Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. I, I, I want to make a remark about uh, the influence of growing up around Mormons on the Sandman, but I'll just leave that alone. <laughs> May 19th, 1992, back at the sports bar, we got a car that included Johnny Hotbody retaining the ECW title over Mr. Sandman and a main event of Salvador Belomo beating Jim Neidhart by disqualification. Oh. And then they were back only a week later, May 25th, with a main event of, listen to this, the bouncer Chris Duffy Against Tatsumi Fujinami. Holy shit. I didn't realize they'd gotten Fujinami in. I have no idea. Maybe it. Maybe. Did Dennis Corluzo have a New Japan connection? He very well might have. He, he might have still been working with Todd Gordon at this time before they had that falling out. That's the only yeah. thing I can think of. If anybody knows how Tatsumi Fujinami ended up on one of the first ECW shows. Uh, tweet me at Outlaw Historian or tweet him at Ben Dangerously and let us know. Uh, the next show was June 23rd, 1992, my mama's 39th birthday. Oh. And it was on that day that the Super Destroyers became the first ECW Tag Team Champions, winning a tournament final over the team of Max Thrasher and Glenn Osborne. The Nightbreed. Oh, they were the Nightbreed. Yes. Did I see that match? I may have seen that. If you watched that uh, Best of ECW 1992 Volume 1, then you did see that match. Yeah, okay. That was what I was trying to figure out. So the next show would have been uh, July 14th. And so these two shows, June 23rd and July 14th, are going to be where we got the matches on the video that we watched today. And this is... uh, a recent addition to the WWE Network. We were originally going to start with the first episode of Hardcore TV from April 1993, and then a couple of weeks ago, after we'd already decided we were starting this podcast, they added uh, these two videos, The Best of ECW, 1992, Volume 1, and Volume 2, 
And then there's also an uh, ECW TV pilot from November. So I think, Ben, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Volume 1 this week. Okay. And then maybe next week we can talk about Volume 2 and the TV pilot. Yeah, I think so. And then after that, we can start on Hardcore TV. Sounds good to me. The people in the opening video for the show, among... Uh, these were the kind of talent that you were getting on some of these early ECW cards. Uh, Davey Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart, Don Morocco, The Sandman, Nikolai Volkov, Jimmy Snuka, and Ivan Koloff, who we talked about. It. I, I made these notes before I uh, I watched the show before I made the other notes, so I didn't I hadn't looked at all the cards yet. Yeah. So I was surprised to see Davey Boy Smith and Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov. I, you know, I, I hope, and it's out there somewhere, that uh, Ivan and Nik- uh, Nikitai Koloff, um, I just screwed that up, Volkov. Nikolai. Yeah, <laughs> Nikolai Volkov not even the same family Ivan of Russia. Koloff. Yeah, it's, I, not, it's Ivan I, Koloff and Nikolai Volkov. <laughs> yes, thank you. I hope they had an interaction so that you can see the, the NWA Russians and the WWF Russians interact. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I was um, I was looking through some results of like uh, the NWA World Champion schedule from the early '80s, and in the process, I just found that there's a match. It was on an All Japan tour. It was Ric Flair and Roddy Piper against the team of Ashirahara and Jumbo Saruta. Wow. And as far as I can tell, that is the only time that Roddy Piper and Jumbo Ceruto were in the same wrestling ring. So I just, that's my thing that I hope and pray is on a tape in somebody's attic in Japan somewhere. Yeah, no doubt. But anyway, the CCW show, it's, uh, it was in the sports bar. It looks like a show in a sports bar. This is VHS quality footage from almost 30 years ago. Everything was blurry. The announcers' voices were blurry. So the announcers, I want to say something about them. Yeah, please do, because I couldn't even identify the announcers. Well, I had to do a lot of digging, but the the two announcers were Jay Sully, or as I like to call him, Great Values Vince McMahon, (laughs) who was doing kind of play-by-play, and then the color guy was Stately Wayne Manor, Ernie Santilli. Uh, his real name and he's like done a lot of writing for like the the, the some of the um, New York posts and stuff like that or the globe and also was involved in music and the reason that I call uh, Sully the great value sinister man because he has that big booming voice like Vince and some of his enunciation I thought was like wow is that dude really trying to do a Vince McMahon impersonation or is he just naturally like that? But God, they were terrible. Yeah, Joey Styles cannot show up fast enough. Well, he shows up pretty quick because uh, Sully is only there for like a year. Um, yeah. and, and Manor wasn't bad. He actually seemed to have a quick wit. He just really seemed to be about getting himself over. Yeah, and I know that by the time 
Because I actually went back when we first talked about this idea. I think it might have been before I even uh, said anything to you about it. I watched the first episode of Hardcore TV, and by then I don't remember who the uh, who the play by play man was, but the color commentator was Terry Funk, who's uh, okay. Terry Funk doing anything is an improvement over almost anybody. Yes, I'm about to say you can't go wrong with good old Terry. You could go wrong with Damian Stone. <laughs> the first match on this Best of ECW Volume 1, Iron Man Tommy Cairo against Damian Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew Tommy Cairo's name from just reading early ECW results. I didn't really know who he was. Uh, Tommy Cairo is a big jacked up dude. Yeah. Uh, Damien Stone was a dude. Do you know who Damien Stone is? No. Little Guido. No. Are you serious? I'm serious. He loses like 60 pounds and becomes Little Guido. Oh my god. I would not... I would not have believed that. I feel... I feel bad for all the shit that I talked about. In this <laughs> oh, I buried him in my notes here. I didn't know. Oh, I right. like, I like little Guido. <laughs> I did too, and I, I looked at him. I was like, that guy looks an awful like, lot like little Guido. So I looked it up, and you know, the sources I, I I looked at could be wrong. So maybe it's not. But as far as I know, that is little Guido. Okay, you entertain the people talking about this match for a minute. I'm going to look up my sources. Sure. So, I, you know, as he said, Iron Man Tommy Cairo is a big jacked-up bodybuilder. He kind of looked like he raided the Steiner's closet because he's wearing a tiger-striped singlet. Um, He gave, like, these incredibly sloppy arm drags to start the match. Um, He would go on to work UWFI in Japan, so I guess they saw something in him. Um, but this was just initially a very sloppy match. The announcers, as I said, were terrible, but they did a pretty good job of covering for the sloppiness by saying, oh, he must have slipped there and all this other stuff. Um, okay. There was. Go ahead. I, I have more information about uh, a little Guido as Damian Stone. You were right. I'm appalled. <laughs> and. Uh, this this had to have been one of his earliest matches because this is oh, yeah. the this is the first match that match July fourteenth nineteen ninety two at the original sports bar in Philadelphia against Tommy Cairo is the first match listed on his cage match profile. Oh well, there you go. And uh, he's going to hang around in ECW for at least the rest of nineteen ninety two. So we don't have a lot of nineteen ninety two footage, but maybe we'll see him again. And then of course we'll we'll see him much later. Uh, after he's had a stand in the UWFI and he's become the Sicilian suitor, the Italian piranha, the, ex- the extreme stud, little Guido Maritano. Yes. Little Guido Maritano was not, uh, Damien Stone was not interesting. <laughs> in fact, I, I have, I'm, I'm sorry, Guido, if, if you find this podcast and you listen to us, I'm, I became a big fan later, but you know, if I had seen you when I was four and a half, <laughs> I would not have been into you. Uh, but Tommy Cairo was kind of interesting. Uh, he threw this little guy around. Damien Stone did. Uh, he 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 got the heat on Tommy Cairo. He and did. By got, and by got the heat, I mean he put him in a rear chin lock. 
uh, well, and a terrible one at that. They went into an incredibly bad uh, top wrist lock, you know, and it was just, uh, uh, that was a terrible transition. That was, I think me and you could probably do it better than that. Neither one of us trained. That, that uh, UWFI stint is going to do wonders for, for Damian Stone. Yeah. Uh, they went to the outside, they brawled. Tommy Cairo slammed Damian Stone on the concrete. After I was whipping him into the post. I was hoping it was over. It wasn't. He basically no-sold it. <laughs> and then they got back in the ring, and Damian Stone came back and won on him some more. Yeah. And then yeah. something insane happened. Yes. I, I literally <laughs> sat up in my chair and went, holy fuck, when I saw it. Tommy Cairo hit a gonzo bomb on Damian Stone and pinned him. I don't think it was supposed to be a gonzo bomb, but that's what the fuck it was. <laughs> I went into this match thinking, I've heard of Tommy Cairo and I've never heard of the other guy. And Tommy Cairo looks like a big, impressive athlete. So surely he's going to thrash this geek. And then they had a 50-50 match with an original Luthez-style powerbomb. <laughs> that would later be made famous by Toshiaki Kawada. Yes. So, and this, this isn't over. How no, it? no, that, <laughs> that's what I was like. I was like, oh my God, that has to be it. I mean, and it was the finish of the match. Thank God. But Tommy Cairo just killed this little dude with a gonzo bomb. And then Damian Stone attacked Tommy Cairo from behind and left him laying. Yeah. I was like, what is this Vince Russo bullshit? <laughs> and then the announcers say, this isn't like other promotions where you have a guy you've heard of and a guy you've never heard of. False. <laughs> that is exactly what this match was. <laughs> well, maybe if we like frequented that bar, we would know who they were. But yeah. <laughs> Speaking of matches between a guy you've heard of and a guy you've never heard of, Jim the Anvil Neidhart against Wildman Sal Balombo. With his manager, Stevie Wonderful. God. Oh, Stevie Wonderful. I have I have written down here, Belomo was coming to you by a manager named Stevie Wonder or something to that effect. Yeah. He was not the famous Stevie Wonder. No. I don't even think he was a famous Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Turns out that he was a, a not-so-famous Stevie Wonderful. He was actually the original sound guy for ECW. Huh. Did not know that. I, I didn't either till today, so you are not alone. And I have to say something about Belomo's outfit. It was fucking terrible. It was like he was wearing a cross between the gobbledygooker costume and a gladiator outfit with a fucking long sleeve t-shirt on underneath it. <laughs> he looks like a he looks like he's wearing a shitty Viking Halloween costume. Yeah, it was oh my god, it was bad. The only thing worse was the match. Yeah, so this fucking match. Belomo, who is a big, tough-looking, crazy man, played sh chicken shit heel. And then he finally cheap-shotted Neidhart and got the heat on him. And then the manager tried to hit Neidhart. Neidhart moved. The manager hit Belomo. Neidhart knocked the manager down and then pinned Belomo. Yeah. And then and Neidhart... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the stalling before the match to get the... Yeah, Belomo into the ring to start the match took longer than the match. We're going to talk about some fucking stalling here in a little while. We are. <laughs> yeah, we are. Nightheart, for good measure, beats up the manager until Don Morocco ran in to attack Nightheart. 
Well, and it's even weirder than that because Morocco actually chases Wonderful into the ring so Neidhart can beat him up. Oh, I didn't even catch that. I was there was so freaking much going on. And the announcer sold this as a big turn. Yeah, I didn't get that either. I, like, I don't oh, remember. I don't remember Don Morocco and Jim Neidhart ever having a big association. I don't either. Uh, ever anywhere, you know, maybe in Canada somewhere. But if they're going that deep, well, God bless them. Um, you know what my favorite part of this whole part what? is? Is other than the fact that Mor- Morocco looks totally uninterested when he's beating Neidhart's ass. Is that some guy in pink and black with face plate <laughs> runs out to make the save, and the announcers don't say anything about it, and Morocco beats that dude's ass too? And I was like, "What the fuck just happened?" <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna read exactly what I've written right here. <laughs> some guy in pink tights with long hair and face paint made the save for Nightheart. I have no idea who this man was, and nobody bothered to identify him. <laughs> Well, I don't think that the, the announcers knew who some of these guys were, as we'll talk about shortly. I, I didn't even know who the announcers were. Well, I didn't either, and it took some damn well digging to find. <laughs> so we got the Super Destroyers against the Nightbreed mm-hmm. for the ECW Tag Team Championship. I wasn't clear on watching this. If uh, if the titles were vacant or if the Super Destroyers were the defending champions, but now having looked at things, I realized that this may have been the tournament final. Yes, uh, apparently, apparently so. And uh, the Super <laughs> Destroyers were accompanied by their manager, Hunter, Hunter Q. Robbins, Q. Robbins III. III. Oh my God, I love who this I, guy. He's who terrible. Is, he was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> he is this weird. He looks like. The black guy from the IT crowd, kind of. A little bit, yeah. And he's just a nondescript guy in, like, a gray suit, and he's kind of annoying. Had a cane. And he's the manager of of the World Acting Champions. And his face was bandaged for some reason. Oh, yeah. They brought it up, but uh, uh, I don't know. They they brought it up one time, and that was it. And it's, it's funny because... The Nightbreed are two guys who do not look like they should be in a tag team together. It's Glenn Osborne, who's kind of doing the Terminator gimmick a little bit. And Max Thrasher, who looks like, you know, a thin Oliver Humperdinck. (laughs) So I was like, uh, okay. And the announcers never call them by their individual names. It's always the Nightbreed. That's and why I was... didn't realize that that was that, that was Glenn Osborne and Max Thrasher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Called them the Nightbreed. And another thing that he had an annoying habit of calling the fans the Ringsiders. <laughs> and I was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" And I was like, "Oh, he's talking about the fans." <laughs> Speaking of Ringsiders, uh, I, I was in the middle of noticing that the referee for this match was Jim Molyneux. Would go on to be an ECW referee till the till the end, I think. Yeah, and then somebody in the crowd stood up behind him, and I swear to God, this person looked just like Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> I Did didn't notice see? that. <laughs> I I couldn't unnotice it. It I noticed it so much that I had to make note of it. If that was you and you find this podcast, I apologize. Um, anyway. Where? Have fun ruling the galaxy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Three big guys and a medium guy had a match in a small ring. Yeah, it was a very small ring. <laughs> the Super Destroyers got the heat on the medium guy. Christ. WWE Network 
got heat on me by continuously buffering. <laughs> I, I was having some internet trouble earlier this week when I was trying to watch this. This I match was know. so. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> this match was so fucking boring that I zoned out. I wrote some tweets. I looked <laughs> back up, and they were still wrestling. I do not understand how this match was put together. Let me read you my some of my notes. Thrasher starts for his team, gets a quick two count with a crossbody, but gets taken down with a clothesline that Soli calls a forearm. Uh, Soli is playing face announcer, making all kinds of, oh, there's two of them, blah, blah, blah. Osborne is tagged in. The Destroyer spends seven minutes working over Osborne's leg, pulling him off on pin attempts. Then they just shove him into his corner so he can tag out. What the fuck? <laughs> this match went 11 minutes and 47 seconds. And it was, they were building the super because the super destroyers dominated this match. I don't the other team. I don't even know that Osborne ever got any offense in, and Thrasher got very little. And despite the fact that they've been dominant this entire time, the ending is their fucking manager hitting Thrasher in with a cane. There wasn't even a hot tag to pay off for all that damn heat they got. Yeah, this was not a good match. No, no, not at all. <laughs> All I wrote was the Super Destroyers finally won. I don't know how. It doesn't matter how. Side note, they are the longest reigning ECW Tag Team Champions. Oh, God. I'm, I'm, I'm glad this year goes by fast because we don't have a lot of <laughs> I don't I mean, need to they, see. Yeah. I don't need to see a whole lot of the Super Destroyers. I saw somebody call the finish of that, which was Super Destroyer 2, I guess, the smaller one, jumps off the top rope, and somebody called it a senton, I guess. It looked to me more <laughs> like he was going for a whoopee cushion then forgot what the fuck he was doing. I don't know. It was bad. Uh, who was it? Was it Colt Cabana that does, like, he does a, a, hip, a hip bump, but he calls it, like, the flying asshole? Yeah. That's... That's kind of what Super Destroyer was here, a flying asshole. Yeah, it was not good at all. The main event for the ECW Heavyweight Championship. The champion, Johnny Hotbody, against the former champion, Jimmy Superfly Snooker. Yes, Hotbody escorted to the ring by his manager, Devious Don R. Allen. Thank you, because I wrote here, Hotbody has another nondescript heel manager. <laughs> <laughs> You he was very nice. You put the peanut butter in my chocolate. <laughs> that, that's why we make a great team here. The a crowd, better team than any the last two we just saw. We are a better team than the Super Destroyers. Or the Nightbreed. Or the, yeah. Or the Nightbreed. Yeah, initially, I thought it might have been... Um, fuck, we just mentioned him. Because um, to me, he kind of looked like... Oh, shit. I can't believe I'm just playing up. Well, it don't matter. We'll, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, the crowd chanted, nobody at Johnny Hotbody. Kind of true. Where's your hair? They stalled for over three minutes uh, yeah. before they made contact. Now, let me let, let, let me set the stage here but before I let you tag in. They stalled for over three minutes before they made contact. Finally, Todd Gordon, the promoter, came out. And ordered Hotbody into the ring. Hotbody gets in the ring, and they stalled some more. Mm -hmm. The crowd chanted "boring." They were right. Yeah. Even Snooker was getting bored. You could tell. And can, then I, they finally... can I say something here? Let, 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 let me finish. Sure. 
They finally made contact at the five minute and 52 second mark. Hotbody tried to jump Snooka. He failed because Snooka's head is hard. He stalled some more. And then Johnny Hotbody, the heavyweight champion, applied a side headlock. You may take over now. Well, what I was going to say, they chanted this was fucking boring, and they were right. And just think of the last couple of matches we described. (laughs) Now, granted, a couple of those were taped on a different night. But in this presentation, (laughs) it's like, holy shit. They all... uh... So, on my network, I mentioned that I had been having some buffering problems. Mm-hmm. There was no buffering during the first six minutes of stalling. But as soon as they started wrestling a little bit, the buffering commenced. Mm. Well, you didn't miss a whole lot. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, and uh, I say that, but Hot Body, at least, like I said earlier, when you were going through the results of some of the cards before us, Hotbody actually knows how to wrestle. He's not as clueless as some of these other guys that we've been describing. And was actually, actually, he was more into the match than I think Snuka was. Because Snuka seemed pretty damn bored throughout the entire thing. Um, and there was actually one spot in the match that I actually laughed. It was when Hotbody jumped off the top rope to do the, the Tatanka top rope chop thing and he hits snooka on the head and then sells his hand like he heard it i I thought that was a great callback to snooka having an incredibly hard head i was just about to get to that right after i wrote i don't think i've ever seen two guys do less than a championship match or finally hot body does a big chop of the top rope and hurts his hand on snooka's hard polynesian head yeah (laughs) that was the only thing in this match that i popped for to this point Mm -hmm. (sighs) mm-hmm I mean, Hotbody, and maybe it's just because he's a Philly guy and it's a Philly crowd, aside from that early boring chant when they were stalling, his interaction with the crowd and the way they were on his ass, you know, made the crowd seem hot. So it buffered some more. (laughs) Hotbody and his manager got the heat on Superfly. Snooker tried to sunset flip him into the ring. Hotbody sat on him and held the ropes. The ref caught him. Snooker got a sunset flip and got a near fall. Then, about 18 minutes into this damn thing, a wrestling match broke out. Yeah. Snooker made his comeback. He beat up Johnny Hotbody. He beat up the manager. Hotbody came back, hit a very nice German suplex for two. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Snooka gave him a couple of backbreakers, went up top, hit the super fly splash, and won. So we, we got a happy ending to a 20-minute match that had about two good minutes in it. My final note on that match is Snooka wins. Glad that's <laughs> over. <laughs> Snooka celebrated his championship victory, and then uh, the heel announcer is is sort of lamenting that the baby face has beaten the heel for the promotion's top championship. And the guy says, and I quote, this is worse than the Hindenburg disaster. Yeah. Uh, and that's how the video ended. Classy, stately Wayne Manor. <laughs> classy. That was the end of the video. This is worse than the <laughs> Jimmy Snuka. <laughs> Jimmy Snuka winning the ECW championship was worse than the Hindenburg. Mm-hmm. Good night, everybody. Yeah. He didn't even say good night, everybody. He just yeah. said that. And- <laughs> it did. 
Was this really the best of ECW in 1992? If so, that was a very bad year for ECW. Oh, if that's the best, I want to see the worst. Yeah, man. Man, oh man. You know, and, and fuck, the best match was Cairo and Little Guido. At the <laughs> it <opening> was. <laughs> it was, and I did not expect that when the show started. <laughs> Me either. Oh, this show started at a weak point and went downhill from there. It, well, it ended. It ended. The last few minutes of the show were good. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I don't, again, uh, well, just like I said with that tag match, I don't know who put this match together. I don't know why they went out. It's like, okay, guys, you've got 25 minutes, you know, and the snook is like, I'm not working more than four. <laughs> so hot, buddy had to stall or what? But it was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, I kind of want to see Johnny Hotbody more, and I get he. I think he he's he sticks around for a few years. Yeah, I think so. I think he's there until. Well, I think he's there until. Um, Paul Lee takes over the booking. I think maybe even a little bit longer than that. He he looked like he looked like he was a good hand. I was impressed with his ability to get something out of a uh, fifty-year-old Jimmy Snuka. Yeah, um, and what I was going to say earlier uh, was I thought that Devious Don R. Allen kind of looked like Stevie Richards. Maybe it was just a grainy-ass video, so that I had to look and see who it was because I thought maybe that was Stevie Richards, but it's not. This was horrible video quality. Yeah, it was not very good. It, it's so weird that, you know, I remember, I said I'm uh, fairly younger, but I still remember living in that time and having to deal with... Uh, Got awful video quality, so that was a, a little bit of its own uh, trip down memory lane. Well, and you know, part of that was honestly because even when ECW becomes ECW and the video quality is much, much better than it is here, it still wasn't up to the standards set by WWF and WCW for obvious reasons. So that was part of the charm and part of what gave it that that gritty, grungy edge in the 90s. But yeah, this was just bad. And I don't know if it's due to tape degradation or just technology. The audio, I could, like, the middle two matches, it seemed like there was only one announcer. I could only hear one announcer, and I couldn't hear everything he was saying. It was, yeah, not the best. If you I had bought that age, oh, you yeah. See my cat that just jumped on the. <laughs> table. I usually I usually remember to close my mouth the store when I record, but I forgot my my wife is out of town, so it's just me and the dog and the cats. So Bella says hi to the podcast. Ben, do you know what what was a far better first episode than this first episode of uh, of uh, the best of ECW? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this first episode of the Oh My God cast. This first episode of the Oh My God cast and ECW retrospective was I think it was quite good. Uh, we, you know, we're going to get better at this. Uh, I've been podcasting a little bit for a few months. I think Ben has been dabbling as well. We're new to this, but we're both very passionate about it. I think we're going to get better at it. I do too, and I hopefully you will give us feedback on this first episode and stick with us as we continue the journey. we got to find... Uh, we got to find music. We got to get a graphic. We got to do all kinds of work for this podcast. Yes, we do. 
Ben, plug your uh, plug your Twitter account and all that good stuff. We'll get out of here. All right. You can find me at Ben Dangerously or search the hashtag Get Dangerous and you will find um, my interest where I tweet about just random stuff, really, and then also some about my historical research and also the other podcast that I do that is a heavy metal album review if you want to check that out. Um, Trey, tell us about what you got going on. Uh so yeah, uh, Outlaw Historian on Twitter. I do the Outlaw History podcast. I'm gonna have Kevin Levin. Er, I can't. I, I say his name wrong every time. But you know the guy I'm talking about, the Civil War memory guy, the Still searching the Black Confederates guy. Yeah, I don't remember. We say it on the podcast. We have a whole thing about it. He's gonna I, be on the Outlaw History podcast. We talk all about his book, Searching for Black Confederates: The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Uh, I had a great episode last week with my friend Dr. Nairu Bacallian. We talked that was about. A really good episode. We talked about The Last Samurai. We talked about uh, the Meiji Restoration. We talked about Shiramei, the Japanese butthole Bigfoot. Had a really good time. Uh, and I had a really good time doing this, Ben. I think uh, we're, we're going to do this again, right? We're going we're gonna to make it a thing. We're going to see if it gets over. Um, as long as you are willing to do it, I'm willing to do it, because I will always watch and talk about wrestling. I, me too, man. Me too. And that's what it's all about. And uh, I'm... Hopeful. A lot of people love ECW. I'm hopeful that they'll spread the word. Uh, the Blue Meanie follows me on Twitter for some reason, so hopefully he'll give us a retweet. I love the Blue and, Meanie. That's awesome. Yeah, me too. Uh, for Ben E. Dangerously, I am. I I don't really have a gimmick name. Do I have a gimmick name? I'm Trey, the Outlaw Historian. Well, you you have your your you know backup account when Twitter wants to ban you for dissing fucking fascists. Yeah, yeah, I, I get into Twitter jail sometime for for being mean to Nazis and hurting their feelings, <laughs> and I don't even remember the name for that fucking account now. But uh, just follow me; you can find everything I'm doing at Outlaw Historian on Twitter. Uh, gonna go. Ahead, I, I haven't even posted this link on Twitter yet, but the site is it does exist. You can go to it. There's not much there yet, but there will be outlawhistorian.net. Oh, sweet! I didn't know it's, about this. Yeah, breaking news. It's gonna be it's gonna be the home of uh, everything that I'm doing in in the world of history, in the world of uh, podcasting. We're uh, Ben and I are both working on our PhDs in history. Um, we talked about on on an episode of the Outlaw History podcast where we talked about the G1. We got a little bit into it. I think a lot of people know I'm a Civil War historian. Uh, ben, you were a Europeanist who ended up being an Americanist just through a lot yeah. of crazy circumstances. And um, it's it's a hard uh, career, hard profession to break into, much like the wrestling business was and is to some extent. And we're trying to put our passion and our skills into a project that we can hopefully make something out of so um thank you for joining us on the oh my god cast on ecw retrospective and uh thank you for checking it out and we'll hope you'll be back next week all right see you then bye